Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. and a wonderful show for you today. I've been looking forward to this as I love my Tuesdays as well. We're going to have Rob Bluey coming up in just a minute. And then Dr. Greg Borgon will be joining me after that. And then in the second hour, Dr. Bradley Sickler is going to talk about his new book, God on the Brain, what cognitive science does and does not tell us about faith, human nature, and the divine. But I'm always glad on Tuesdays to start with the executive editor of the Daily Signal, Rob Bluey, who's always great and never less than sensational. Rob, welcome back. Hey, Bill. It's good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. You had a very interesting podcast over at the Daily Signal recently with uh, Guy Benson and Mary Catherine Hamm on the media bias and the woke identity and how it has infiltrated newsrooms. Oh, we sure did. Well, Mary Catherine Hamm and Guy Benson are interesting because they wrote a book a few years back called End of Discussion. Um, and basically that book was talking about the the forthcoming, which we, we've seen recently, uh, cancel culture and those efforts to shut down uh, debate and discourse in our country. And uh, and certainly that starts with uh, with the media and so many examples uh, that, that we can point to over the course of of this past year and, and years back. And, and Bill, uh, I think that it's something that you and I have talked about. The media plays an important role in informing our, our fellow citizens about news and, and political events and, and things that might be happening in their community. But all too often, they bring their agenda uh, to the table and they don't necessarily um, leave their political views at the door, as, uh, as would be the case perhaps uh, years or decades back. And, uh, and so we find ourselves in a situation where the media started to fragment. You have conservative media outlets like the Daily Signal. You have liberal media outlets uh, like The Nation and Mother Jones. Uh, you have uh, establishment uh, organizations like The Washington Post and New York Times. And uh, we find ourselves sometimes in these filter bubbles where we only consume a certain type of media. And, and I think that uh, through media bias and some of these egregious examples, uh, w- one that, uh, that Mary Catherine Hamm cited was how uh, there were – two different types of protests that really captivated Americans this year. Uh, one was obviously the racial divisions that were taking place in our country and people coming out and, and supporting Black Lives Matter. And then the other one was, um, you know, to, to resist the lockdowns and, and encourage our government leaders to not necessarily take such draconian steps um, in the face of the pandemic. And, uh, and, and one of those uh, got, got glowing and favorable coverage, and the other one uh, got the exact opposite. So it just goes to show that uh, depending on a, on a reporter's point of view, uh, you might necess- you might you know see the story be biased to a certain degree. So it's one of the things that at the Daily Signal we label everything news or opinion. Uh, the opinion you can expect to get conservative commentary. The news we want to give you a straightforward facts, and that's uh, that's what we aim to do each and every day. Which is what I appreciate about about you and your team. So, Rob, let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, Governor Northam, and he does not have the, the business to tell other people how to worship, but he's going to give it a try, isn't he? 
<laughs> that certainly seems to be the case. And look, uh, this one I, I can feel directly uh, because uh, I, I live in the Commonwealth of Virginia and uh, and we're already seeing the consequences of this. As I've, I've shared with your listeners before, uh, we uh, we were in a situation where uh, our, our church for the past 10 years uh, decided to go all virtual, um, mm-hmm. uh, not provide uh, uh, Holy Eucharist or communion. And uh, and so we we found a different church that was having services, albeit at the hour of 8 a.m., which on Sunday mornings uh, in December can be quite chilly, <laughs> especially when you have three children. But uh, but we've been doing that now uh, for most of the fall. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the governor and 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 now our, our the bishop of of the diocese has decided that uh, that those in person services can't continue, even if they are held outdoors with social distancing and all the safety precautions. So I think that it's really unfortunate, um, as as the Reverend uh, Samuel Rodriguez uh, said a, a while back on the Daily Signal podcast. Uh, you know, when you have a situation where some of these political leaders say it's okay to ha- to let the bars and restaurants continue serving customers, but not churches, uh, that really just shows, um, you know, the situation uh, is being quite backwards. <laughs> uh, people people need um, and, and want to, to worship, and uh, and they should be able to do so, particularly for those those uh, congregations that are doing so in a safe way that's that's compliant with the regulations and uh, and doesn't encourage the spread of COVID-19. Yeah, what is the agenda behind this, Rob? I mean, you you go to any big box store and there's lots of people in those stores. Yes. And they're all oh, yes. trying to do their very best to social distance, but they're passing each other in the aisles and they've got masks on. And I don't know how that is so significantly different from people spacing themselves out in church with masks. Exactly, and and as as Rachel Del Judas writes in this this article, I mean, you know, so much, particularly in the tenets of Christianity, Christianity, it's you know, worshiping as part of a community is is important. So I think that the governor, you ask about his agenda. I mean, I I don't know what his his particular motives are, but I mean, I think we do know in his this particular case, he is somebody who has has clearly made a decision and. Uh, unfortunately, for those who who want to partake in in services, uh, church services, uh, they are now finding themselves in a position where it's it's becoming increasingly difficult to do so. And I know from my own experience and my family's experience that uh, watching a broadcast on Zoom is not the same as as being physically present and right. being able to receive communion. And right. so I, I think it's unfortunate. Uh, the, the, ch- the church that, um, that we go to right now is, is going to try to still figure out how to do it, uh, perhaps. And I think we've seen other, other congregations do this, where you have the cars drive in, you broadcast over an FM radio station uh, or you know, FM dial. And, uh, and Bill, you know, I mean, I, w- we can try all sorts of creative ways here, but, uh, you know, maybe we'll have an opportunity to talk in this program about the great developments that we're, we're seeing uh, with, the, with the COVID vaccine. Um, we, we got some, a, another piece of really good news today uh, that uh, some of the in-home uh, rapid tests are, are now uh, going to be uh, available. The FDA granted emergency authorization uh, to an over-the-counter at-home test today. Uh, it'll it'll be about thirty dollars, and you'll get the results in about twenty minutes. These are the types of things that I think we need, um, our culture needs, to be able to start to grapple with some of the consequences of the pandemic and and not rush to these these types of lockdowns. So as more and more people get vaccinated, and as more and more people have access to these tests, hopefully we can take the precautions we need to keep everybody safe. 
Mm-hmm. Now, Rob, as we talk about some of the restrictions on churches, uh, one case has already gotten to the Supreme Court, and it was in favor of a Colorado church. Would you talk about that? Yeah, so the Supreme Court uh, said that a federal court needs to reexamine uh, the, the Colorado's restrictions on indoor religious services. Um, you know, the court now for, for a second time, you'll remember it was right before Thanksgiving, they, uh, uh, they, they struck down um, uh, what Governor Cuomo in New York uh, was attempting to do. Uh, this is another separate case, which deals with uh, the Plains Harvest Church in Colorado. So it, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's encouraging that the Supreme Court is, uh, is making these decisions. I think it's unfortunate that so many political leaders still are trending down this path. Um, now, the Supreme Court, uh, they're, like the rest of our country, there's still some divisions in here uh, <laughs> uh, among those uh, who, who are on the liberal side who, who argue that maybe this isn't necessarily the best approach. But I think that, uh, I think that the, the encouraging thing here is that now we have uh, two decisions that, that set us on, on the path uh, where, where Americans can, can um, celebrate uh, their faith and, and do so in a way, again, that, uh, that is safe. And, and you can't have a political leader because they might be hostile um, to religion, uh, which, which, you know, again, I don't want to subscribe any motives to, to people. But, I mean, it just seems over and over again when you allow certain uh, types of businesses to do uh, engage in commerce, but you don't allow uh, churches to allow their uh, parishioners to gather together, uh, it strikes me as, as being hypocritical. Mm-hmm. All these great stories can be seen at Daily Signal. Dot com. You can head over there. And recently, I think it was in early December, um, the U.S. Department designated China as a country of particular concern for its uh, violations of religious freedom of its citizens. It did, uh, and, and, a, and a designation that I think uh, was a long time in coming. Uh, China uh, has, as we know, uh, engaged in, in pretty egregious and uh, and regular violations of of religious freedom of its citizens uh perhaps not shocking news uh given the the, the chinese communist party's uh control uh, over that country and its uh it, its attitude toward religious groups the most notable example and the one that is by far uh the most concerning is the internment of the the uyghurs um in concentration camps in concentration camps um they uh they are, you know, among many. We've talked to uh, others uh, who have escaped China uh, from groups like the Falun Gong. So this is not something that just developed overnight, Bill. It's uh, it's been systemic. It's uh, it's happened for years, and uh, and we certainly know that it's uh, it's something that uh, that we need to pay close attention to. Uh, I think that in today's world, we started the show talking about media. Here is a great example of a story that should get much more attention from those big outlets. And it shouldn't be, uh, you know, just those of us at the Daily Signal and and others who are trying to to point out what's going on in China. We need much more scrutiny uh, from from the big players uh, on China here. And I think that that could help put an end to these uh, violations of human rights and uh, and persecution based on religion. I mean, what you read, Rob, is just so stunning that the government, the Chinese government, would separate children from their parents and then threaten to beat the children if the parents do not renounce their faith. Oh, it's it is it's 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 terrible. Um, it's, and yeah. uh, and some of the the things. I mean, 
these these re-education or, or concentration camps, uh, you know, are, are places that are just horrific. And, and there's there's satellite imagery of this. I mean, there, there's there's documented evidence that, that we have and the, the Chinese would prefer, obviously, to sweep it under the rug and not not have anybody talk about it. And uh, and I think that that's unfortunate uh, because, uh, you know, so many people will will oblige. This is why I think. Uh, regardless of of your, uh, your your support for for President Trump or not, I think that he's done some really positive things in calling attention and shining light on what's going on in China. Um, as, as others like Speaker Gingrich have said, China is today one of the biggest adversaries that that we face. This is actually one of the the, the rare opportunities for bipartisan agreement in Washington. Uh, after the the Director of National Intelligence recently came out and and, and cited some of these uh, things that were going on in China, uh, you did see Democrats and Republicans agree. So so Bill, we we just hope that on behalf of humanity, uh, there are those in the United States and and positions of leadership that can continue to apply the pressure on China and make sure that uh, hopefully. Things like family separation and, and organ harvesting and discrimination uh, across the board um, come to an end. Yeah, the children are suffering tenfold in, in these examples. So it's just a, so sad. Rob, let me take a short break. Rob Louie is my guest executive editor at The Daily Signal. Head over to dailysignal.com. We'll be right back. to the show. Rob Bluey is my guest, executive editor at The Daily Signal. Go to dailysignal.com because every time you go there, you're going to learn something. Like, for example, Rob, I just learned about the rich history of Jewish prayer on the floor of Congress. There again, I didn't know much about that. Yes, and, and I encourage your listeners also to sign up for our, our daily email, the Morning Bell Bill. It's a, it's a great way to get the stories delivered right to your inbox. But yes, this is a, an interview on today's Daily Signal podcast uh, with with a good friend of mine, Howard Mortman, who is uh, somebody who whose job it is to to watch Congress closely. And as he says in the interview, this is the one thing that Congress does that is so unlike anything that we we imagine about our, our lawmakers. And they start their day with a prayer. And uh, it's really um, it's really fascinating. I, I imagine so many of us, and myself included, just overlook this aspect of of Congress and uh, and what takes place there on the floor of, of the House. And uh, and and the House and the Senate each have a chaplain, of course, uh, and and that is you know encouraging in this day and age when it seems that religion is constantly under attack. But Howard goes on to talk about in his his own observations about just how unique this is and uh and and how on these occasions, you know, it's it's a moment of of reflection and obviously prayer. And uh it's you know, we set aside the the bickering and the debates and we really uh look to God um uh for for his wisdom and uh and and, and thank him and uh, and then you know we we charge into the big debates. So it's uh, it's really one of those those interesting things that still takes place in Washington, and hopefully will for 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 quite some time, uh, because I think it's really important uh, that it's part. Obviously, it was part of our founding in the United States, and I'm glad that it's still part of what takes place in our Congress. And I love this custom, and the tradition goes back to the very beginning of American legislative branch. 
And even before they completed the Bill of Rights, there was already a prayer opening Congress. So this has been around forever, and boy, is that encouraging. And I should I should mention that that uh, that Howard, if I miss this, uh, he works for C-SPAN, and of course C-SPAN is the <laughs> the station where you can find all of this great content, and and again on its on its website as well. But uh, yeah, it's it's definitely something to pay attention to next time you're flipping through the dial and you see uh, see Congress starting. Um, you know that is uh, that's an important aspect of it, and and again, it's uh, it's one of those bipartisan traditions. Uh, it doesn't matter who the Speaker of the House is. This is this is something that continues. Yeah. Rob, before we went to break, we were talking a little bit about uh, home testing for COVID-19. And I I think the question I I have that I didn't ask before the break was, I think the technology is there, but are they available yet, these home tests? Well, that (laughs) right. That is uh, that is part of the challenge. I mean, that's the that's the same thing with. Um, just your 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 standard tests that that we that people have been able to get now for for many months, uh, as we saw before the Thanksgiving holiday, there was such a, a rush uh, for so many people who were traveling, and, and states have now required you to be tested to to cross uh, the state border, for instance, and and people were waiting for hours in these parking lots to oh. to be tested, and it was just uh, oh, taking forever. Now, um, if you if you <laughs> You know, have the the means and the money. I mean, obviously, you can have a test delivered to your house, but it's probably going to be relatively costly, and you you would still then need to take some extra steps. Like, for instance, you could have the test delivered, you could do it yourself in your own home, but then you have to ship it out, uh, FedEx or UPS it, and uh, you know, it, it arrives at the lab, and they run the results, and then you have the results a few days later. What I think is the game changer here with these rapid tests is that you can find out relatively quickly. And uh, it's going to be less expensive than the, those really costly tests. Now, uh, the the um, um, I think it's Alum is the is the name of the the company. They hope to produce three million tests by January, and they hope to have twenty million tests by the first half of next year. So by the end of June of next year. So you know, hopefully by that point we're we're winding down, and enough enough Americans have uh, have had the vaccine, and we have herd immunity. But yes, it's uh, it's going to be slow at at the beginning, Bill. Uh, just as we've seen with a, with a lot of the things that we've been adjusting to here with COVID nineteen. But I think that it's an encouraging sign that this is happening, and and we have been urging the FDA now for for many uh, weeks and months to really push uh, these through uh, for, for approval. Uh, there's no need for the government to stand in the way of, of these, these tests, particularly those tests that, uh, that give people access uh, to this information instantaneously and, and may be able to save a life and keep others from getting sick. You know, when I heard when Elon Musk took four tests in one day, two of which were positive, two of which were negative, it did make me wonder how accurate they are and can we trust them? And when we get um, a negative? Do we have confidence that it is negative? And um, I wonder sometimes if we're if we're over testing or uh, or if we're just counting too much that the tests are going to be reliable when in fact they're not always that reliable. That that's that's a good point. I mean, you you, uh, you you've seen it with Elon Musk, and you've seen it with uh, with NFL football players, uh, some of whom have tested positive only you know hours later to test negative and then be allowed to play the game. So. Certainly, uh, there there are some of those false positives, and I think that that's where um, you know if again if, for those who have the resources, you know they uh, they're able to to do multiple tests for 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 me and for a lot of Americans. You know, it's uh, it's it's a challenge. I think um, 
Uh, I've had one test, Bill. I've only had one test. And I think I've mentioned this before. When I was going on um, Air Force Two with the vice president, they required all of the reporters to get tested. Same thing with the reporters who show up at the White House to do uh, coverage of, of the president. Uh, you you have to get your, your test every day. And those are, are rapid tests. And I will say, in, in my experience, it was relatively easy. But I know that there are some tests that are, are quite uncomfortable as well. And so, yeah, it's uh, it remains a challenge. There's no doubt about that. And uh, and hopefully, now that the we have two uh, uh, two vaccines, and and the second vaccine is it doesn't require those uh, really cold refrigeration levels, so it'll be able to reach more people, um, uh, particularly out in, in rural parts of our country. And so. Uh, all of these things are, are are made possible because of Operation Warp Speed and and some of the resources that uh, the that President Trump has helped bring to bear. And uh, and you hear um, uh, Vice President Biden talking about this uh, in in a lot of uh, a lot of uh, you know his remarks um, that you know the American people need to brace that this winter is going to be difficult. There there's no doubt about it. And. Uh, we need to be prepared for things to get better, things to get worse before they get better. But I think that all of these developments are certainly encouraging. And I remember many months ago we were talking about whether we'd have a vaccine even by the end of the year. And the fact that we have two now that have been approved is is really a positive sign. Yeah, you did say that was good news, and I agree with you completely, Rob. Would you take just a couple of minutes? We're kind of down to a few minutes left to talk about these two vaccines that are now uh, becoming available. Sure. Well, the first vaccine, which uh, which the the first U.S. Um, uh, citizen received yesterday, uh, was uh, was the Pfizer vaccine, and that's the one that needs to be kept at a really cold temperature in order for it uh, it to to work. Um, that one is going primarily to the healthcare workers, the frontline workers, as well as those in nursing homes. So I'm hopeful that my 99 year old great aunt is uh, in New York is is on the list and will will receive it soon. The second one is, uh, is the one developed by Moderna, and that's the one that the FDA um, is, is close to have granting emergency approval. This one has a 94% efficacy rate in preventing COVID infections. Uh, you need to have two doses with this one, and it's going. And Moderna said that they're going to start distributing 6 million doses uh, immediately, and that's double what Pfizer was able to roll out yesterday. So, uh, you know, there um, it also has really encouraging results across, uh, uh, you know, white, black, Hispanic, men, women, young, old. So, you know, those of people who might be concerned, um, you know, in that regard, I think uh, some of these results are really encouraging. And and again, I know that there are people out there who are skeptical. I've seen the polling on it, Bill. But I'm hopeful that as people have the vaccine and they can show that, uh, that, that, that they, you know, do have the antibodies to prevent uh, COVID, uh, that they're okay. Uh, as we talked about last week, you don't want to get COVID. I just talked to somebody who's a longtime Daily Signal reader who just talked about his horrible experience that he and his wife went through. Uh, it is a challenge. There's no doubt mm -hmm. about it. And it's not something you want. And we're all knowing more and more people who are having uh, um, a, a case of it. So it's getting, getting around for sure. It sure is, Bill, and yeah, uh, we, yeah. we pray for all those people out there who've been affected by it and their families, and uh, and we hope that uh, we can uh, we can get to a better place here in in twenty twenty one. That's for sure. Yeah, well, Rob, thank you so much for being with me today on the show. I look forward to talking to you again next week. Very good. Thanks, Bill. Thanks. You bet. Rob Louie's been my guest, executive editor at the Daily Signal. Head over to DailySignal.com. You can hear about all the stories we just discussed and and read more. 
We're going to take a little break. When we come back, Dr. Greg Borgon is going to be with me. Be right back. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Welcome back. I'm so glad to have a chance to talk once again to my friend, Dr. Greg Borgon. Uh, he is a professor and pastor and all-around interesting guy who has uh, learned a lot about what's gone on with the symbols of Christmas, and some of them have been wonderfully repurposed for Christians. And I think it'd be a nice time to chat about those because they're out in our homes and we're looking at them and enjoying them, and I sometimes wonder if we completely know what they mean and where they came from. Greg, welcome back. Oh, it's good to be back. Well, let's talk about some of the symbols of Christmas, things that are maybe in our homes right now that we don't know exactly how they got repurposed. Well, it, it's interesting um, why they were repurposed to begin with. First of all, um, you know, even even to the date of, of December 25th, how did we arrive at that day to celebrate Christmas? Um, so it may be helpful that uh, we start there and then we'll move right into those symbols. Is that okay? That'd be awesome. Yeah. So while the first recorded date of Christmas was, I don't know if listeners know this, was celebrated actually on December 25th in 336 A.D. It was during the time of the Roman Emperor Constantine. He was the first Christian Roman emperor, of course. But it wasn't an official Roman state festival at the time. For us here in the U.S., Christmas was dedicated as a national holiday on June 26, 1870. So the question, of course, is, was Jesus really born on December 25th? The short answer to that is no. <laughs> it's not believed Jesus was born on the day Christmas is really globally celebrated. Instead, Christmas was chosen as a convenient celebratory day on the same day of a pagan holiday that celebrated the winter solstice. So many of, including this, but many of the symbols and the circumstances now surrounding Christmas had really pagan roots that were repurposed by the church and given new meaning. So I know that there are some out there that don't even want to celebrate Christmas because of its pagan roots, but um, it's good to know that they have been repurposed to uh, mean something to us as Christians. So under the influence of the church, really, Christian traditions replaced these pagan solstice festivals throughout Europe. More innocent pagan practices, such as, for instance, bringing in the Yule log or decorating with holly and the like, were uh, carried over into Christmas observance and repurposed, of course, as we just talked about, with new meaning. For instance, evergreen trees were the symbol of eternal life. Martin Luther himself uh, introduced them to the Reformation Church as a picture of our endless life in Christ by bringing in a tree to his family on Christmas Eve lit with candles. And he did that after walking through a forest bill and saw the beauty of, of the moon uh, lighting the snow that, were, that was on the trees and on the ground. And so he actually cut the tree and brought it into his home and decorated it with candles. And that was the beginning of, of the Christmas tree or evergreen trees, if you will. Um, candles, when we use candles, which I'm looking around at my house right now, and they're all over the place during this <laughs> time of Christmas, um, they're the picture 
that Christ is the light of the world. So some people bring candles in just for the beauty of it or the scent of it during the Christmas holidays. But it would be kind of nice to tell our children or our grandchildren, well, the reason why we use candles uh, during this season is to celebrate the light of Christ, who is the light of the world. Holly is another example, for instance, that speaks of the thorns in his crown. When you take a look at Holly, you see those spines coming out from those leaves. And um, really, it, it speaks to the thorns of his crown, for instance, in Matthew 27, 29. Even the color red uh, has been repurposed by the church to mean uh, it's really the color of Christmas. It speaks to Christ's blood and death mm-hmm. and sacrifices, tremendous sacrifice. Um, gifts, for example, are a reminder of the gifts of the Magi to baby Jesus. We always think about the three kings from Orianar. We really don't know if there were three. We've come to that conclusion reading Scripture simply because um, of the three different gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but we don't know. God doesn't tell us that there were three. We just assume that that's the case. But in any reason, any case, the, the gifts are the reminder of those gifts that were given to the baby Jesus. Each of them speak to a component of his incarnation, majesty in life, the bitterness um, in terms of the agony and death. Um, and as God's perfect gift to us in Matthew chapter 2. The, the, the Yule log, some people still celebrate the Yule log, and, and um, for many of us now we just see it as a representation on our TV during the holidays as we listen to Christmas music. But the Yule log was a symbol um, by which all men in the family would carry a log large enough to burn for 12 days into the house. Can you imagine that fireplace? Oh, wow. The size of that fireplace? <laughs> but that I log didn't know that. burned for 12 days. <laughs> they were identifying with Christ and his cross. The fire was started, and this is really interesting, Bill. The fire was started with a fragment from the previous years. In other words, it may be a charred fragment, obviously, but that would be a part of the kindling that would bring this new Yule log uh, alight to, to celebrate uh, Christmas. So it refers actually to the eternal existence of Christ before his birth. Uh, So it speaks of warmth, of unity, of joy, and security of of, uh, endless life. So 12 days that log would burn. (laughs) If Um, I brought a log into my house that would burn for 12 days, I would also have my house that would have burned down. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, you can imagine at the turn of the century how, how large these fireplaces were. Uh, because it was the only means, in many cases, of bringing heat into the house. So they're mm-hmm. they're pretty large. So it would be easy to, to see how that could be a possibility. But today, um, that's probably not going to be the case, unless, of course, we have a huge fireplace. Mm-hmm. Um, mistletoe is another thing. So mistletoe actually was an ancient symbol from Roman times. It was under mistletoe that old enmities and broken friendship were restored. Isn't that a beautiful image? Oh, it's beautiful. That, that, that you'd, you'd put down your weapons, you'd, you'd embrace your enemy, um, you would restore broken friendships. So that was the purpose of mistletoe. It wasn't just to stand under and kiss each other. The real symbol of mistletoe, again, was to um, that old enmities and broken friendships were to be restored. So Christ was the one who took away the enmity and gave us peace with God. That's beautiful. So there's a way of looking at the mistletoe now, different than just walking under it and kissing somebody. 
Um, the bells. Bells are associated with the ringing out of news. Christ is the good news, so the best news of all. Um, and so bells could symbolize that. Now, the Christmas tree, there's, a, there's some history behind this a little bit. This is kind of interesting, Bill. So among the many accounts claiming to explain uh, the origin of the Christmas tree, the three of the most popular are from Germany, probably uh, making it the likeliest place of origin, regardless of which of these is true. One is a little bit more fantastic than the others. So I'll, I'll just give you a, a, a brief overview of what those are. So all three have some element of historical fact, and they uh, may even loosely connect one to another. The first is the story of St. Boniface. In the 18th uh, century, he was a missionary uh, to some of the remotest parts, uh, remotest tribes of Germany. Um, he's probably best known for what's called the felling of Thor's oak. It's said that upon entering a town in northern uh, Hesha, Boniface learned that the people worshipped the god Thor, who they believed resided in a, this great oak tree among them. So Boniface determined that he, well, if, if he wanted to go ahead and earn an audience with the people, he'd have to confront Thor. So he announced before uh, the people that he was going to cut down the oak. And he openly challenged Thor to strike him down, <laughs> uh, kind of like Elijah, you know. Uh, miraculously, though, as Boniface began to chop the oak, a mighty wind blew and hurled the tree to the ground. Now, this is, is tradition. We don't know if this is true. That's why it's a little fantastic. Uh, tradition holds that a fir tree was grown in the roots of the oak, and Boniface claimed the tree to be a symbol of Christ. So needless to say, the people readily accepted his message, and the tree eventually became associated with the birth of Christ. More likely, though, is probably this next tradition that uh, of the Christmas tree. So another possible source of the Christmas tree, and probably, again, the most likely, comes from the medieval religious plays in Germany. Among the most popular of these plays was called the Paradise Play. It started with the creation of man, acted out the first sin, and showed Adam and Eve being expelled from paradise, the Garden of Eden. It closed with the promise of a coming Savior, which made the play a particular favorite during Christmas season. In the play, the Garden of Eden was most often represented by a fir tree hung with apples and surrounded by candles. Isn't that amazing? That's so, amazing. That's probably the most um, significant one. And, and the third tradition uh, from Germany, we've already talked briefly about it, is about the origin of the Christmas tree, uh, which attributes to Martin Luther. And we've already talked about that. So those are some of the things that have been repurposed. So I would encourage our audience not to be uh, get too hung up about the origin of some of these practices, uh, just to understand that they've been repurposed uh, to bring meaning to the incarnation, which is the significance of Christmas, is it not, where God became flesh and dwelt amongst us. As a matter of fact, when Mary was told by uh, the angel that uh, actually told by uh, told Joseph that Mary would be given birth to a son, uh, and his name would be called Emmanuel. It was actually referring to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And Emmanuel, of course, means God with us. Probably the largest section in Scripture that talks about uh, this, what's called the hypostatic union, or the the nature of God, him being fully God and fully man, um, uh, is found in, of course, Isaiah, that references the fact that it's Emmanuel, means God with us. 
And when you take when you take that into consideration, Bill, the only way that our sins could be truly forgiven is providing an innocent sacrifice. And it was God in the flesh that uh, became and, and embraced the punishment that were, was due us. So that's why it's important to remember not only that Christmas is a celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ, but what that birth actually meant and what he did for us. Fascinating, uh, Greg. I really like this. You know, some traditions seem to have lost favor. I remember as a kid uh, during the month of December, maybe uh, once or twice a week, particularly on weekends, there would be a knock on the door and there would be a bunch of people out singing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, caroling. Yeah, singing. Uh, and matter of fact, there's there's three or four hymns that are dedicated totally to the Christmas event, and it's pretty significant. And I remember that too, Bill. I grew up in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, on the border of Canada, where we averaged over 120 inches of snow a year. And uh, that was the case. And we even had people come by in the evening and dressed up in, in 18th century garb, um, <laughs> singing. Yeah. Um, and uh, going from house to house. So I agree with you. That was I don't see much of that anymore. I mean, much. Do you see it at all? I mean, sometimes you'll see a little trio in a, in a mall singing, which is lovely, but that those are the kind of uh, trios or groups of, you know, six, eight, ten people that would show up and be singing on your doorstep. And it was, I remember it just being wonderful. Oh, yeah. And, it, and especially one of the things I remember, Bill, the most of during Christmas is being able to stand outside and watching through uh, the streetlights, the snow coming down on a slant and being quiet and feeling the crunch of snow under the feet. And to me, that was Christmas. And so, you know, it's not that Jesus was born in the winter, but for me as a kid, it just symbolized Christmas. I, did you grow up in a, a, a place where, uh, well, you were in Minnesota, right? So yeah, I was in Minnesota. I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you knew about snow, but I don't know if that had the same feeling internally with you when you see the, the, the snow coming through the lights and the quiet. Uh, but it always, to me, brought to remembrance Jesus and yeah. his birth. Well, it seems like the majority of the population don't experience a, a wintry Christmas, yet all the, 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 the depictions of Christmas are all wintry scenes. Yeah, they sure are. Well, and again, because it was celebrated on the 25th of December, like we said back in the 4th century, and and then even um, declared as, as the date in which we celebrate it um, in 1870 here in the U.S. Yeah. Take a little break. Dr. Greg Borgon is my guest. We'll be right back. song for Dr. Greg Borgon he is from Heart of a Warrior Ministries, heartofawarrior.org. You can go check it out. He's been nice enough to spend some time with us today talking about some of the repurposed traditions of Christmas. And also, Greg, I'd like to touch base a little bit on the incarnation where sure. Jesus leaves this elite status of heaven and comes to earth uh, as a baby. And I'm thinking, is it is he 
born and thinking I am finally going to try out this wonderful thing I created called sleep. <laughs> oh, you're going to have to ask him when you go to heaven. I will. I'll go to the information booth and say, what was that like? <laughs> well, you know, we don't hear that term very often uh, anymore about the incarnation. Um, but, you know, just to set the stage, as we talked about briefly before the break, uh, before the birth of Jesus, of course, an angel appeared to Joseph and revealed that Mary uh, who uh, had conceived a child through the Holy Spirit, which probably was a great shock to him at the time. Mary would give birth to a son, and they would name him Jesus. Then Matthew, quoting actually Isaiah, provided this, this kind of uh, important revelation. He says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Quote, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. They'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's what the scriptures actually say, Matthew chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. So 700 years earlier, the, the prophet Isaiah foresaw the virgin birth of, of the Messiah um, and prophesied that his name would be Emmanuel, which is God with us. So it expresses the miracle, really, of, of the incarnation. Jesus is God with us, and fully God, fully man, but God with us. So in the Old Testament, uh, we find that the presence of God with his people was most evident uh, when his glory filled the tabernacle or later on the temple. But that glory was surpassed, according to one scholar, biblical scholar, he says, was surpassed by the personal presence of God the Son. God became flesh, God with us in person. Um, so probably the, the most significant passage, Bill, on the incarnation is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, where John says that the Word was with God, and it's capitalized in, in our Bibles, the Word is capitalized, was with God, and the Word in Greek, of course, is logos, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, verses 1 and 2. So John uses the term logos, the Word, as a clear reference to God, and he declares in verse 14 that he became flesh and dwelt amongst us. One of my favorite stories, Bill, is when on the night of his arrest, Jesus was teaching his disciples, and Philip uh, made a request. He says, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. So, and it was a perfectly natural yearning, but Jesus replied, and I could ex ex almost see it in my, own, in my mind's eye, Bill, of maybe Jesus putting his hand on Philip's shoulder and saying to him, as the scriptures state, Philip, I have been with you all this time, and still you don't know me? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. What a tremendous moment. That's where so mind-blowing. Yeah, where Jesus declares that he and the Father are one. In essence, he's saying to Philip, have I been with you so long, Philip, and you still don't know me? Don't you understand that the Father and me were one? We're the same. Wow. I mean, that that just blows me away just reading it right now. And yeah, me too. So I, that's yeah, a great. powerful statement. How is it ever? I'm still a little stuck on the emotions Joseph must have had when he found out that Mary was uh, pregnant. And does the Bible teach us from the time Mary told Joseph 
she was pregnant to the time the angel spoke to Joseph, telling him it was okay? Um, it, well, well, actually, when you t- talk about the term betrothed, it, me- it meant that you were actually bound to be married. It was, it was, it was um, as significant as being married itself. So, right. uh, you know, when Joseph was given this message, um, it it was in advance, obviously, well in advance, because you can you, you talk about the story about him finding the the a place to stay because of the census that was being taken and so forth, and coming to a place and finding out that the inn was full. And so he's led to, uh, actually what it probably was, was a cutout um, um, hole in a, in a large rock. Um, and when it says the manger, what the manger actually meant was a, a trough that held the food for animals. Mm-hmm. And that's where Jesus was born. So I don't know exactly what the time frame would be, but there was a significant amount of time between when he was informed and the child would uh, Jesus was actually born. Yeah, so there would be some time that Joseph had with that information prior to getting the angelic visit where he had to do some, probably some soul searching. And at, at one point, didn't he think that he would quietly divorce Mary? Well, you would think that that would be the case, um, but um, he didn't because of the message that he received. And so uh, this is a great conversation to have with Joseph when, when we get, get to heaven, because how would we respond today? <laughs> you know, if yeah. that, that story happened to us. So it's not trying to read 20th, 21st century contemporary thought into that moment, um, because we, we didn't hear from the angel either. But uh, you can imagine what must have been going through his mind and his love for Mary and not wanting to shame her. And 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 uh, speaks a great deal about the character of Joseph, don't you think? It really does. And then I think about the life of Joseph, and we don't really know or hear much about him after this episode. So we don't know when he died, and was no, Jesus no. alive when he died? And no. it's all fascinating. More questions I want to ask when I get to heaven. Yeah, Bill. Maybe in the few moments we got left, we can give some ideas about how to make Christmas about Jesus this year for our, our listeners, Sweet. if you're okay Let's do it. with that. Yeah, please. Um, there's a couple of ways in which we can do that. First of all, uh, we can start a tradition of giving a gift to Jesus. That can be represented by an unsolicited gift to somebody in need or a gift to a missionary or um, a gift to the church uh, anonymously that the family knows is, is the gift that they're giving. But it's because of his great gift, we are giving him a gift. That would be one way to make Christmas about Jesus. Another would be like Christ to give to those who can't repay you, finding somebody in your neighbor or somebody in in dire need. And we've got plenty of those cases today in light of COVID and the light of what's happened in Minneapolis um, during the protests and the riots and, and so forth. And there are a lot of people in need this time of year maybe adopting a family and and uh, giving them something that you know can't be repaid that would be another way to to represent christmas as as about jesus a third would be um you know simply to pause to sense the darkness outside at night and then thank god for the sending the light in the midst of mm. the darkness we've talked about before bill that whatever light we have is all the brighter against a darker background no matter how dire things get 
light always has a way of dispelling darkness, not the other way around. Another bill is which we do in my family at the Christmas Eve. We read the Christmas story, but we do so in a chronological order. Um, so it, it, hopefully your listeners have a pen handy. If they're not driving, don't stop or try to write something down while you're driving. But if you're at home, uh, I would recommend you read the scriptures in the, this following order. Luke chapter 1, verse 5 through 38. Luke 1, 5 through 38. Then go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Then come back and pick up chapter 1, again, verse 39 through 56. Then move to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 38. And then go back to Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 23, and conclude with Luke chapter 2, verses 39 through 40. That will give you the birth of Christ and the anticipatory events leading up to it in chronological order right from Scripture. It's powerful, Bill, when you read that. It could be each member of your family who reads one of those passages. So that would be another thing to do. Another would be, to, of course, to start some traditions that point to Christ. It may mean mm-hmm. reading the Christmas story like we just outlined from the Bible or maybe even attending Christmas Eve services when that's again possible, or before opening gifts to pray and thank God for the gift of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Those are just uh, some of the words, Bill, that, that we can help bring the focus back on the real reason for the season. Those are wonderful. Thank you so much. Dr. Greg Borgon has been my guest. We will wrap things up. Our one next up, Dr. Bradley Sickler will be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.